Hello, all my Facebook friends. On a Sunday afternoon, I'm saying hello from Tyler, Texas, where there's no more snow. Uh, but it looks like we're going to be getting quite a bit of rain, and that's uh, okay because this is Texas, and Texans are always glad to have rain. We don't have any yet to speak of, really, but it looks like over these next few days, we're going to get our share. And that is always, as I said, a nice thing here in Texas. When it comes down to July and August, <laughs> we'll be wishing for rain, no doubt, no doubt. I hope that you're doing well, and I hope that you are uh, having everything that you need and that you are feeling close to God. Uh, this morning in our worship service with West Irwin Church of Christ, we continued our series on the book of Romans, a very important study of Romans chapter 6. So I hope if you haven't uh, weren't able to participate with us online today, then I hope that you'll do that. You can go to West Irwin dot com west with a w e s t irwin with an e r w i n that's the street we're on westirwin.com you can click on the uh, uh, link at the top just scroll over it that says social media and resources and uh, click on the link to live streaming page and then go down to where it says archives you'll be able to see our worship service and my sermon and uh, hopefully you'll take part in that we had a good crowd this morning live we had a good crowd online and I know that there'll be others that will join us as well. In these Sunday afternoon studies, we've been going through, working through uh, a gospel in the New Testament, the book of Mark. And, uh, and so we'll be doing that in just a few moments. Let me say hello to a few folks. It looks like we've got a good group gathering. Uh, my dear friend and sister Barbara Kasky is here. Love you and great to see you. Uh, Tia Clark, wonderful to see you. Great to see you, my dear sister. Larry and Lynn, Cindy and Eric, some of our regulars, along with Lenny and Joe. Hooray, good to see you. Pat has been attending almost all of these as well. Pat Slade, so welcome to you as well. And many more join in, I understand and know that uh, don't sign in and say hello, and that is more than okay. Uh, but I appreciate everyone being a part of these studies and look forward to getting into this chapter in Mark chapter 7. It's a chapter that talks about false and true worship. It's really a chapter that talks about false and true worshipers. Uh, we'll look at a passage of scripture from Isaiah 29 that Jesus actually quotes uh, in this uh, interchange that he has with some of those around him. And, uh, and we're going to get to see a great example of uh, a woman who offers true worship, genuine worship. Uh, to God and has an attitude that we would all do well uh, to emulate as we go on reading. Uh, but as we get going, I, you know, it's always interesting to study the Gospels. There are several things that make the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, unique. I've talked some about this before as we uh, remember uh, the, uh, the application of the Gospels. They're, it's very important to remember that as we're reading this, their narrative, their story, stories about the life and teaching and experiences of Jesus when he was here on the earth. And so as we're reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're reading the narrative of things that happened when Jesus was approximately 30 years old to, his, uh, to 32, 33 when his life was taken. Some of it begins, as you know, before his birth. But for the most part, the Gospels deal with his life and teaching and ministry. Uh, and so that's one aspect of it. And then you remember that as Mark, for example, here writes his Gospel, he's writing decades after those events took place, uh, perhaps 
only a couple, two or three decades, Mark likely being the first of the four Gospels written. I think that's the case. Uh, and, and so it's been a while, and the church has been around a while, before Mark either ever puts a pen to paper, so to speak. <clears throat> and as Mark writes, he's writing to the church. He's writing to Christians. So as we read this, we're reading about things that took place um, perhaps 20 or more years, 30 years even, uh, before uh, Mark actually is writing them down. And the church has had a chance to go through a lot of the things that we read about uh, in the book of Acts and uh, perhaps even some of the things that take place um, later. The book of Acts ends somewhere around A.D. 60 and maybe a little later with Paul in, um, uh, under house arrest, basically, in Rome. He is uh, released from that, history would tell us, and goes on and does some more preaching and traveling, goes all the way up to Spain, is rearrested, brought back to Rome, and this time uh, is convicted and, and put to death by beheading about the same time as the Apostle Peter. That's sometime in the mid-60s, A.D. 60s, or uh, C.E., current era, 60s, whichever you prefer on that. But as Mark writes his gospel, it could be about that same time. It could be as many as 10 years or so earlier. Uh, but I do think that Mark's writing um, uh, his gospel before any of the other three uh, write theirs. But either way, whenever it is, it's long after these events took place. He's writing about things that happened years before. And we forget that sometimes as we read the gospel of Mark or the others that we're thinking that Oh, these are, he's talking about things that are happening right now. Well, no, they happened quite a bit before. And as he writes, he's writing as a church leader. He's writing as somebody that is uh, sharing these things with the church, with Christians. And yeah, the idea would be that people will hear the story of Jesus and become one of his followers. Certainly Mark wanted that. But primarily he's writing to uh, people who have already gotten to know Jesus and are members of the church and now want to know how they should live based on how Christ lived and the sacrifice that he made for us. I really do think that even Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that that's part of their purpose. Um, and so we, you know, we think about that. We think about the narrative recording events of Jesus' life and ministry and death. We think of of uh, and his resurrection and a while after that he's not on the earth for very long uh, 50 days between his resurrection and the time the church begins on the day of pentecost and jesus ascends to the father long before the day of pentecost happens so uh, but we see him around a while and then uh, and then the church begins in acts chapter 2. Um, so we, uh, we get that that's a different kind of scale, a different kind of app purpose and application. But there's one more very important application, and that's the one for us. Here in 2021, as you read the Gospels, you're not just reading a nice little story about somebody that was famous and actually lived a great and wonderful sacrificial life, had some uh, t teaching that was very challenging to the people of his day, and they put him to death for it. And uh, according to the Gospels, I certainly believe it's true. He was raised from the dead and is now uh, the Lord. Well, that's that's a nice, interesting, encouraging story if you're a follower of Christ. But really, ultimately, what you want to do is apply it to yourself. 
You want to apply the Gospels to yourself and your life. And I think one of the things that's interesting as I read the Gospels, and perhaps you'll identify with this, is that uh, I, I think it's important for us to put ourselves in the story somewhere. As the Gospel writers, including Mark, in this chapter, in Mark chapter 7, we, we have encounters that Jesus had with different sorts of people, sometimes religious leaders, uh, sometimes individuals like the woman we're going to read about uh, today, sometimes his disciples, his closest friends, his apostles, uh, sometimes others along the way, and uh, uh, just people of the Jews. And, and so I think it's good for us as we read the Gospels and read each chapter that we put ourselves in the story. And what I mean by that is take an honest uh, look at your life and ask yourself, okay, well, where, where am I in this? And I think if we're good church-going folk, and I imagine most of the people that watch these videos are good church-going folk, um, I, I think we tend to put ourselves in the role of the good guy. Um, in this case, this woman we're going to read about. And we don't put ourselves in the role of the bad guys, which are typically the Jewish leaders who just never seem to want to give Jesus uh, an opportunity to have an objective hearing, not just in their land, but in their own hearts. And so I think the temptation for us to fight is, is putting ourselves always in the role of the good people instead of hearing Jesus' words challenge us and call us out on the things that we need to change. I do believe that that's one of the purposes of Mark's writing is to remind us of Jesus' power and of his teaching and, uh, and of his call uh, to deny ourselves and follow him. Well, I so as we read this, I, I want us to try to keep that in mind. And really, as we go through this whole study in the Gospel of Mark, <clears throat> to try to keep that in mind. So all of that, let's start with uh, where Mark starts in Mark chapter 7, with an example of false worship and false worshipers. And these are the ones that Jesus calls out. In Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law or scribes, some translations say scribes, who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. Uh, this seems to be a little bit of explanation from the gospel writer. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Uh, hard to translate that. Uh, some manuscripts translate that differently. Uh, but the call, the whole tenor of the passage is about uh, these religious leaders uh, instituting their traditions in, uh, that have, they've taken from the law and uh, and forcing it upon uh, others, expecting everyone else to follow that. Verse 5, so the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? And so <clears throat> these matters of ceremonial washings, whether you're talking about baptisms, uh, which were very common in the days of John the Baptist and Jesus, John wasn't the one that invented baptism. His was different. And Jesus' baptism was different in, in particular in this case. They called people who were already Jews 
to be baptized for repentance. Uh, that was different. And there were a lot of baptisms around. There were a lot of ceremonial washings around. Uh, the leaders of the Jews would call upon people uh, to do that. If a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, then that was part of their ritual that they would do. But for Jesus and John the Baptist, the difference was they were calling on those who were understood to be faithful Jews already uh, to be baptized for repentance. And that was that was different. And of course, the church, when it begins in Acts 2, calls on everyone, Jew and non-Jew, ultimately, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That's specifically stated in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the very first time we encounter Christian baptism, baptism that's done, teaching that's done in the name of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, that's where it is. And that's what it says. Jesus himself had said at the end of the Gospels, in particular, Matthew and his great commission in chapter 28, and also Luke in chapter 24. Luke says that you're, Jesus tells him to wait in Jerusalem until you're clothed we're given power from on high, and then repentance and uh, salvation shall be taught uh, from Jerusalem in the name of Jesus. And so we see that fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 and then throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, we talked about a good passage this morning, uh, Romans chapter 6 in our worship service, that speaks about Christian baptism and is written to churches, to Christians who had already done it, reminding them of their baptism and reminding them that it calls them to live a new and distinctive and obedient life. That's really the point of Romans chapter 6 as we discuss that. I'm not going to preach that sermon again, um, but you can listen to it if you want at our website. Um, and so it's it's important for us to remember that they're talking about different ceremonial washings. And here is where we can make a distinction between tradition and traditionalism. Traditions aren't bad. Traditions are good. I, I like traditions. I think one very sacred tradition is the tradition of the Sunday afternoon nap. Yes, I still try to work one in, even though I come home from church and eat something for lunch. And then at 4 p.m. Central Time, I'm here on Facebook talking to you. Somewhere in between there, I really try to take a, a little nap. Why? Because that's my tradition, a Sunday afternoon nap. Uh, I, I think that's a, that's a great thing. And I think there's biblical precedent for that. Jesus told the disciples at times to come away and rest for a bit. I think if we're going to pace ourselves for a lifetime of service to God, that's not a bad thing. Um, and so there are good traditions. But when we move those traditions from simply tradition to traditionalism, where we begin to require our traditions and force them upon others, that's going beyond what Scripture has taught. Uh, scripture certainly calls on us to live a certain way. But if we're forcing our traditions and our understanding on others beyond what the sacred page, as it's called, would, would affirm, we've gone too far. That's what's happening here in Mark chapter 7. And the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, a sect of the Jews that was very rigid, very much aware of the law and wanting to see everyone fulfill the law, what they had done is they had written hundreds of laws, traditions that they forced on others that said, well, if you're going to follow God's law, 
then not only do you have to obey what it says, but you also have to obey what we say it says and what we say it means and go through the steps that we go through to make sure that you're fulfilling that commandment. Well, that's not exactly the same. And that's what happens here. We see it another time when Jesus and his disciples are, are getting grain on the Sabbath, which seems to be a, a, um, a breaking of the law to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Uh, but Jesus explains that, that that's not actually accurate. It wasn't. They weren't desecrating the Sabbath and the Son of Man had the authority um, to, uh, to be the Lord of the Sabbath rather than uh, create a Sabbath that would have more power over mankind and humanity and certainly Jesus himself. So he, he calls them out and he calls them out here um, and we're going to see that in the verses that follow. <clears throat> but as we read this and we'll go back to Isaiah 29 as well because Jesus quotes from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah writes sometime in the 700s BCE, sometime uh, several hundred years before Jesus lives. He writes as clearly about what the Messiah, what Jesus would be like, uh, as much as any other Old Testament writer. And, um, and, and one of those passages in Isaiah 29, Jesus goes back to in this incident as he condemns the false worship and the false worshipers. Uh, Mark 7, beginning at verse 6. Jesus replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules, the commandments of men. Some versions translate that. Verse 8, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. So they had gone from uh, allowing their traditions to help them and be a uh, an asset in their obedience to God to actually pulling them away from God and God's will uh, for the sake of their traditions. And Jesus wouldn't have it. And he called them out on it. We'll come back to Isaiah 29 in just a moment. Verse 9, Jesus continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commandments of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say what, that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or their mother is Corbin, that is something that is especially dedicated and devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. So here's the command is to honor your father and your mother. But to get around that, they made a loophole. You thought loopholes were new with the American political system. That's not true at all. Uh, loopholes have been around forever. Um, Satan tried to convince and successfully Adam and Eve of a loophole. As God told them in the garden, the one tree that they were forbidden to eat from, Satan says, no, 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 there's a, there's a way around that. There's a way around that. And God just doesn't want you to be wise like he is. Um, and, uh, and so they ate it. Well, Jesus is talking to them about the loophole they created for this commandment that says to honor your father and your mother. Some of them didn't want to do that. They wanted to spend that money on something that they wanted to spend it on rather than to help support their parents 
or any other aging relative or need, uh, relative in need. And so they created this tradition. They created this command, this human command, which is, uh, well, you don't have to use that money to support your needy relatives, specifically your parents, uh, provided you're using it for some other good cause, provided it's devoted to God. Well, that, that may be all good and fine, but it doesn't meet the command. They had used their tradition, actually, to give them permission to break God's command. And Jesus calls them out for it, and, uh, and he's going to keep that up. In verse 14, again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And he's going to continue and keep saying something uh, about that. Verse 17, after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable, about this whole idea that it's not what comes in, but what goes out uh, that can uh, make or break you. Are you so dull? Verse 18, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into the heart, but into the stomach and then out of the body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean, which is a significant thing as Mark writes this, because remember, we're taught, we're, we recognize that when Mark writes this, it's years after these events took place. And as we read Romans and Ephesians and Colossians and other passages, 1 Corinthians, we recognize that one of the things they had a lot of disagreement over was whether or not you could eat certain foods. Some food had been offered up to an idol by a pagan uh, and then sold into, in the marketplace and then a Christian might buy it and take it home. Well, some Christians thought to, to eat of that food would be to observe idolatry. And other Christians said, no, 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 it's just that, that idol worshiper might have used it for that, but I'm not. Um, and, and so Mark puts his commentary here and says, well, this is, this is Jesus' take on that. Paul seems to affirm the same thing in 1 Corinthians 8 when he says in the midst of a discussion about that in chapter 8 and in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, he says, and he says similar things in Romans 13 and 14 and 15, he says, look, this is, um, this is just food, you know, go according to your conscience. If your conscience is bothered, if you eat it, then don't do it because whatever is not of faith is sin. But if your brother or sister is offended, then don't do it because your brother or sister is of higher value to God and should be to you than you exercising your right to eat something. Uh, but if those things are okay, then it's then you're not committing idolatry. Uh, but he affirms in 1 Corinthians 8, not everybody recognizes that. He says flat out, an idol is nothing. Uh, it's just, as Isaiah would say, and Jeremiah and others, it's just wood made into some design or some precious metal overlaid uh, with gold or whatever. And then people nail it down so it doesn't topple over and then they bow down to it as if that's their God. Uh, Isaiah says things exactly like that, how ridiculous that is. And so Paul, um, Jesus, Mark here, all seem to affirm that, you know, an idol is nothing. It's nothing unless I make it something. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about with this whole question. As he's, and, and other scriptures weigh in on this. And so we want to remember that the context is different in different settings. But in this context, Jesus says, look, 
It's not about what comes in. The disciples, they're not washing their hands and their, their uh, utensils according to your tradition, Pharisees and scribes. But that's okay. That's okay because that's not what makes you clean. What makes you clean, what determines your faith is how you live your life. What comes out, not what goes in. Are your words glorifying and honoring God? Are your actions helping others? Are your words and your actions and your teachings, are they <clears throat> consistent with and supporting the word of God? Or like this illustration with uh, honoring your parents, have you found a loophole? Have you found a way that, that what comes out in your life uh, can actually negate the command of God and your tradition has actually justified that, rationalized that? To where it's okay that seems to be what jesus is saying here um uh, it doesn't go into their heart but into their stomach verse 19 when you're talking about food and then out of the body and saying this jesus declared all foods clean he went on verse 20 what comes out of a person is what defiles them for it is from within out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come sexual immorality theft murder adultery greed malice deceit lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Well, we're studying the book of Colossians uh, on Tuesdays and Thursday afternoons here at 3 p.m. Central Time. And we're in, in the midst of a list very similar to what Mark records Jesus giving here in Mark 7. A list of thou shalt nots and thou shalts. We get to talk about the thou shalts, how Jesus tells us to live through the Apostle Paul in uh, Colossians 3 this coming week on Tuesday and Thursday. Here Jesus says, look, it's you're, you're focusing on the wrong thing. You're focusing on the things that you bring into your life, the food you eat. But really what's important is what comes out of your heart. And what comes out of your heart is understood by how you live your life. That's the main issue. Jesus says. And so he lists a bunch of things right here. And we tend, like we do with the Gospels, we tend to focus on those things that we're good at. You know, we, we condemn sexual immorality and murder and other things like that because, you know, maybe that's not something that you struggle with. But do you struggle with slander? Do you struggle with deceit? All of those kinds of things, everything on that list is of equal value in the eyes of a holy and righteous God. And so Jesus says, look, you need to examine your life. What's coming out of your heart is what's significant. Let's go back to Isaiah 29 for just a moment and look at what Isaiah says in the 8th century BCE, before Christ, when he's talking about uh, the people of his day who were doing some of the same things uh, that Jesus condemned in his day. Um, in Isaiah 29, we'll start reading in these verses that Jesus quotes in verse 13, after talking about his message uh, being uh, like people who need to open up a scroll and read it and identify it and observe it, uh, very much similar to what we read about in the Revelation. Uh, Isaiah says this in Isaiah 29, verse 13, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. 
Therefore, verse 14 of Isaiah 29, Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. Woe to those who go to great depth to hide their plans from the Lord, who do their work in darkness and think, who sees us? Who will know? You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you did not make me? Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing? So what is really going on in Isaiah 29? Well, what's really going on is that people were trying to be their own God, just like the people of Jesus' day, just like we tend to be today. Take the commandments of God and his word and force it to say what we want it to say, find the loophole. They weren't planning their lives in accordance with the will of God. And James, the half-brother of the Lord, would refer to that in James chapter 4, as he said that we should act according to the God's will and not make our plans without considering what is God's will. Uh, and, and Isaiah says, look, you can't, you, you have a creator and a creature. <laughs> you have a potter and a pot. And it's the creator that calls the shot. It's the maker. It's the potter who determines what kind of pot it will be. I realize that I don't know much about pottery, but I know enough to know that in some ways the potter has to consider what it, the pot and the material that he's using is capable of. And God does that. He does that. But in the end, ultimately, it's our maker. It's our potter that calls us to live a certain life and to be a certain way. And that's what Isaiah is calling the people of his day out for. And that's what Jesus is calling the people of his day out for. Mark is doing the same by quoting this story. And now that we're reading it, the Holy Spirit is calling on us to take a look at our hearts and ask ourselves, is my following of Jesus, is that simply something that I do when it's convenient, when it's easy, when it's what I want to do anyway? And when it's not, do I find reason to justify my breaking the command of God, my going against the word and will of God? I think it's important as we read stories like this one that we find ourselves uh, challenged by what is said, and that we place ourselves in, in the role of these Pharisees and teachers of the law, because, yeah, we, we do that sometimes. And so we ask ourselves, am I truly reading the Bible, studying the Bible, seeking to, to measure my life against the teaching of God's word and adjust my life when there's a discrepancy? Or am I doing what the religious leaders in Jesus' day and the people of Isaiah's day tried to do, which was kind of mold the word of God around, mold the will of God around so that I can explain why I don't have to follow it. Jesus says when we do that, we're just following the traditions and the commands uh, of humans rather than the word of God. <clears throat> all the prophets call that out. Isaiah does in chapter 1, Jeremiah and Jeremiah 7, Amos and Amos 4 and 5, Hosea 6, Micah 6, um, Psalm 50, so many other great passages of the Old Testament that tell us our lives are to be lived fulfilling the word of God. And, and very consistent with what Jesus says here when he says it's our words and our actions that 
are that come out that can determine and can demonstrate what's in our heart, not the things that come in. Obviously, we are concerned about some of those things. But for Jesus, Jesus says, what effect do they have on how you live your life? That's the real question. Well, in the midst of all of this, before we go today, let's take a look at a wonderful example of true worship. We've seen some false worship and false worshipers. Let's read about a woman who Jesus acknowledges to be a true worshiper. And interestingly enough, this woman is apparently not even a Jew. Uh, She is from Syria, uh, from the areas of Tyre and Sidon, Phoenicia primarily. She's called a Syrophoenician. And Syria is that area just to the north and the northwest along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea of the northern province of Galilee. Uh, Long history uh, in uh, in God's word with the Philistines and the Phoenicians and and even in Jesus' day and in modern times, that area is known as Syria. Um, And and this woman is is from there. Um, And so let's read about her interaction with Jesus in Mark 7, starting in verse 24. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre, T-Y-R-E, one of those coastal cities that pop up a lot in scripture, uh, Tyre, and the other one is Sidon. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. He was well known along all of those areas, uh, not just in the provinces of the Jews, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. Verse 25 In fact, as soon as she heard about him, uh, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Gentile, a non-Jew, born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. Verse 27, first, let the children eat all they want, Jesus told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And we're offended by that. We're thinking Jesus is uh, is really being hard on this woman. But remember, Jesus' mission and ministry was to the lost sheep of Israel, as he says here. He was called to uh, go to God's people and to share his word with them and to ultimately die for the sins of all of humanity at the hands of the Jews and, of course, the Romans. But for Jesus, there are little windows of opportunity that he has to interact with non-Jews. This is one of those. And so he questions her first of all, just as he does, just as God does in the Old Testament, uh, by challenging her for coming. Uh, And in verse 28, she replies, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Well, she could have replied a lot of different ways. She could have uh, spoken out of pride and hurt and arrogance. She could have said, you're just like all the other Jews. You think you're better than everybody else. She could have done that. But she saw something different in Jesus, even if she didn't hear it in his words. She saw one who was far more than just simply human. She saw one who could actually help her when no one else could and could bring healing and deliverance to her daughter. And so her pride was gone. And I think when we approach God, that's our pride needs to be gone. We need to approach God in complete and utter humility, realizing that God doesn't owe us anything. 
And that's the spirit of this woman. She recognized that what Jesus said was right, that he was called to the people of God, that she was not a Jew and that she was not a descendant of Abraham, but she had a daughter that she loved. And Jesus had the power to save her daughter. And so there's this incredible interaction. It's not right to take the, uh, the bread that belongs to the children at the table and give it to the dogs. And she says, yes, but even the dogs under the table are able to eat the scraps that fall. Jesus is impressed. Verse 29, then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Well, this woman, even though she's not a member of the Jewish nation, even though she was an outcast by all standards, according to the Jewish leaders, Jesus interacts with her and he sees her heart and he heals her daughter. Uh, this woman was a Gentile, but she came to Jesus in great humility and she comes to Jesus in genuineness. She is not offended by the words he says to her, even though they're coarse. True, but coarse. And instead of reacting with pride and bitterness, she reacts with humility and with that strong desire for Jesus to act and save her daughter. This woman is much like, I think, the man uh, that we'll read about in Mark chapter 9, uh, who comes to Jesus wanting his son to be healed and recognizing that the disciples can't do anything to help him and wondering in his heart if Jesus could. But nonetheless, he's going to ask. And when Jesus confronts him about his lack of faith, the man, the father tells him, oh, I, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief, but please heal my son. That's the attitude and the spirit of this woman as well even though she is a Gentile. Uh, Matthew tells this story in Matthew chapter 15, and we're reminded that Jesus looks at the heart, and, and the contrast couldn't be greater that Mark gives us by presenting these stories together. Uh, the contrast between the Jewish leaders and their lack of faith, their desire to add loopholes, uh, to find a way to get around the commands of God. And this woman who approaches Jesus in great humility and in great faith because she knows that Jesus can heal her daughter. And she knows that Jesus is right in what he says. Um, and it may be a hard lesson, a hard word for her to hear, but she doesn't go there with him. That's not her issue. All she wants is for Jesus' power and his love to have an effect on her life and specifically on that of her daughter. And he heals her. It's such a great and wonderful story. And as we read these stories here in Mark 7, before we close out, <clears throat> again, I ask us all, where do you find yourself in this story? And I think almost all of us would say, well, I'm, I'm, I want to be like that that Gentile woman, like that woman from Syria, from Phoenicia. But I think sometimes we go even farther than that. I think sometimes we say, well, I'm not, I'm not like those religious leaders. I'm not like those people Isaiah talked about in Isaiah 29. I don't, 
I don't put in place traditions over the word of God so that I can get around what it teaches. Really? Are you sure? Are you sure? I think when we can openly, objectively, honestly, look at ourselves and look at our lives, then we see those areas where we're more like the Jewish leaders in a lot of these stories than we are like this woman, this genuine, true worshiper. Not all the time, not all of us, but it's what we struggle with. And I think it's what we struggle with because we are we have committed ourselves to Jesus as our Lord. We're a part of his church. We seek to read the Bible. We seek to do the things that are right. And so Jesus wants to make sure that we're doing this from the heart. And Mark brings stories like these to help make that happen. Uh, we hear Jesus calling them out. Your teachings are just traditions of men, just human tradition rather than the word and will of God. Your traditions have become traditionalism and you've required it on others. And so it's good for us to differentiate between our tradition and our understanding and the word of God itself. Those passages we mentioned earlier in places like Colossians 3 and 1 Corinthians 8, 9 and 10 and and um, Ephesians and Romans chapters 13, 14 especially, uh, they call us out about our traditionalism. And they say, look, don't destroy your brother or your sister for whom Christ died for the sake of your own traditionalism. Don't do it. See that person as being far more important uh, to God and far more important to you and work together to seek to know and understand the will of God and then work together to help each other be completely obedient. And it starts where this woman started from. It starts with great humility, it starts with a genuine faith that recognizes Jesus is one who actually has the power to act. He is the Lord of all. He is the resurrected King of Kings and he is the only one that we worship. Uh, we, the one, the Gentile woman was an outsider, much like the Samaritan woman in John chapter four was an outsider. The Jew, the, the disciples couldn't believe that Jesus was interacting with her. And yet Jesus found a woman with this same spirit, this spirit of humility, this spirit that was willing to look at her life openly and honestly and heard the words of Jesus and wanted desperately to have that living water that only Jesus can give. This woman comes to Jesus wanting desperately to have the healing for her daughter that only Jesus could give. And Jesus was willing to give it to her. I don't know what you're struggling with today. I don't, I'm sure that because you're watching this, you have an interest in Jesus Christ. You have a desire to serve him according to the teachings of scripture. And I'm grateful for that. And so pray for me as I seek to do that. And I'll pray for you. And I know that God will bless us along the way. If as we're reading his word, we do it in the tradition of Isaiah and in the tradition of Mark, in the tradition of Jesus, and not in the tradition of the Jewish leaders that Jesus interacted with that Mark writes about, and not in the tradition of the uh, religious leaders of the Jews that Isaiah wrote these words to condemn. Uh, your teachings are not my teachings. 
They're simply rules and traditions and commands uh, that are human-based and not God-based. Uh, you're just offering up lip service. God wants the heart. Jesus strikes at the religious leaders in Mark 7 and says, look, let's not talk about whether you're washing your hands or not. Let's talk about what's in your heart. And what's in your heart can be seen by how you live your life. Jesus calls on us to ask those questions and to form our lives around what his word says. May God bless us all to that end. Thanks for watching.